Hey everyone, it's Rosanna Arquette here, your guide for all radical musings. I want to quickly talk about dysfunction. You know, everyone has some sort of dysfunction in their life, right? I mean, I know I do. I mean, talk about dysfunctional. When does shit ever truly go according to plan? Sometimes we just have to look at the humor in our idiosyncrasies, right? I mean, hello dysfunction as in the podcast. Hello dysfunction. Yup, this series is hosted by two childhood best friends, Pata Fria and Crystal, as they share personal stories of their own dysfunction. Nothing is off limits and everything is funny. They talk about their lives, their view on the news, gossip, politics. This is really good stuff. Check out Hello Dysfunction on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Radical Musings. I couldn't be more excited or honored to have this next guest on my show, Ruchira Gupta. Ruchira Gupta is a journalist and an activist. She's the founder of Acne App, a non-governmental organization that works for women's rights and the eradication of sex trafficking in India and around the world. Her work has touched people on a global scale, and it's just awe-inspiring. I'm always so humbled to be in the presence of people who are truly making a difference. But I have to warn you, these aren't easy topics to cover. Sex trafficking is unfortunately so common and widespread and very profitable. This is my conversation with Ruchira Gupta. Hi, Ruchira. Hello. Namaste. Good morning. Good morning. You're back in New York and you have just been in India for a year where, uh, tell me what, tell me the state of what's going on in India right now, as we know, because the farmers and everything that's happening. And then we're going to get into, uh, let, we're going to go backwards. Maybe let's go what's happening right now in India and what you just, uh, witnessed. Um, they took your passport away and all these things that happened. I'd love to talk about that. India is going through its toughest periods, almost like an emergency suspension of civil rights. Uh, It feels like the onslaught of uh, fascism, the creeping in of fascism. We have an authoritarian leader as our prime minister. His name is Modi. And uh, since he has been re-elected two years ago, he has cracked down on journalists, uh, attacked them, jailed them. He has also cracked down at any kind of protest uh, which challenges his policy. Uh, This year, there's a big farmer's protest against a law that he wants to get passed, uh, in which basically uh, he wants to cancel fair price for farmers and remove any kind of government protection and subsidies for the crop that farmers sell by letting farmers uh, out into the open market. And farmers... Millions and millions of farmers are sitting in protest across the country against this because there will be nobody to protect them from the big retail chains if this happens. Uh, Most of them don't have any warehouses and storage facilities, so they will be forced to sell their crop to whoever buys it at the end of the day. Besides that, he's cracked down on women. He's cancelled inter-race marriage between Hindus and Muslims. Uh, It's called love jihad. Uh, So, you know, people are jailed, uh, young people, if they date uh, across religion. Uh, He's also arrested some students, um, a student I adore who was uh, speaking up against the cancelling of government scholarships for poor students in colleges. Um, And he's cracked down on women. Uh, Last year, a lot of women sat in protest across the countries, hundreds and thousands. I spoke in 13 of those rallies. It was against an unfair citizenship act, which was uh, going to marginalize Muslims and turn them into second-class citizens in India by taking away their uh, right to citizenship, even if they were born in India. Uh, So, you know, we have had like a steady onslaught of the erosion of our rights. And I myself have been uh, subjected to a lot of intimidation and harassment. I'm so I'm so worried for you. Um, I was really worried about you. Uh, We met many years ago. I mean, how many years ago now? Uh, Not many, but what is it? Seven? At least. Eight years ago? Like that. And um, and I, I went and I heard you speak. Uh, I think it was was it visionary women or some some place that we you spoke about um, the work that you do, which is 
and I'd love you to explain it, but uh, to people who don't know this incredible work you do, which is helping uh, girls who are sold into sex slavery as children, um, help them get out and educate them and, and create a life and heal. And that, and in India, especially, and you were actually the person, which I've always known about the trafficking, but actually opened my eyes to the fact that brothels and these, this happens here in America. It's here all the time in, um, and it's maybe even more hidden here, but it exists. And it's a huge, huge business is the sex trafficking business, especially with children. Um, tell me, tell me how this came about and how you got into this work that is, uh, you know, the most incredible humanitarian important work uh, as far as I'm concerned. Rosanna, I used to be a journalist and uh, I uh, was walking in the hills of Nepal looking at how villagers manage their natural resources. Then I came across rows of villages uh, which didn't have any girls from age 15 to 45. And I could not understand so many villages with missing girls. So, of course, I began to ask around and uh, the answer changed my life because I found that a smooth supply chain existed from these remote villages in the Himalayas to the brothels of Bombay and Calcutta. Predators, traffickers would come into these places and speak to very isolated, ignorant, innocent farmers offer them like a couple of hundred daughters and say, we will take your daughter to the big cities and there she will have food and she will be able to send some money back home. We'll get her a job. The farmers didn't know better and they would let the little girls go. And most often, you know, these girls were just between the ages of nine and 13. They were very trusting. They were smuggled across the border and put into trains and buses and taken to the brothels of Bombay. And I followed this trail and what I found in the brothels was little girls being raped by 10 men a night for 30 cents, 40 cents. I mean, and I, it's just, it's, it's like hell. This is hell. This is, this is hell on earth, true hell on earth that this exists. And it, it does, it does exist folks out here in America too. Uh, but tell me, so then your your life changed from did you actually follow the traffickers to to a brothel like that is that how you did it yes yeah, so you know then i decided that i would follow and i found a young man who was the brother of a girl who disappeared and he was interested in uh, he wanted to find his sister so with his help i went into the villages i went to the border i met the corrupt cops went undercover and ended up in the brothels of bombay and i vomited because i literally saw girls in cages little girls like 10 years old on display for men and as a journalist i'd covered war i'd covered famine i'd covered hunger i'd even covered some conflict but this kind of intimate exploitation of one human being by another and so I told the story that's what a journalist can do and I wanted to do more but in that moment I made a documentary called The Selling of Innocence. I won an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Journalism but yes. it felt not enough. I was in the Broadway Marquis Hotel surrounded by people, job offers, glamour, the award in my hand and I felt I could do anything. And I thought that that anything has to be something that I have to do for that last girl, the girl I met in the brothel who couldn't get away. So I went back with that award to Bombay and I uh, went to the women and I asked them, I said, I want to do something and you want to do something. That's why you broke your silence. So what can we do? And they said, save our daughters. Uh, they said, whatever has happened to us has happened, but we don't want our daughters to have the same destiny. And you have to just take a moment to imagine the room that I was talking in. It was a small four by four foot room, two beds stuck in, three maybe, and there were iron bars uh, in the window, just one door to go in and out and really tightly packed. The women had no cupboards, 20 rooms in a row in one 
long balcony with one toilet at the end the sound of noise vendors music customers coming and in the middle of that the women sat me down on that bed and i sat on one bed on on the other bed there was a customer with a woman a sari separating the two beds and it was stinking you know it was sweaty and hot and there were rats on the floor oh god and the yes. children were playing Jesus. and rosana the children were playing on the floor while another woman their mother was being raped uh, on the bed next to us so i could understand when the woman said save our daughters and you know we began how did you get in how how did they allow you to be able to sit there and do this interview how were you safe doing that you know that uh, <laughs> that uh, really was such a difficult uh, negotiation you know i did not want to go inside the brothels with the help of the police or with the um ngos that time there were no ngos working there when i made my documentary and i didn't want to use any muscle men so there was a little uh, tea store very basic just a wooden bench and some tables and tea being sold there and i would just go and sit there every day waiting for some of the women to come and have a cup of tea and i would strike up a conversation with them on feminism and they i of course did not look like them so they would say why are you here and i would say i want to tell your story and they would say why and i would say because as a woman i do not like to see other women or girls being exploited and you know one thing led to another and we built trust and they told their story to me and you know there was a moment rosana where the women rescued me i went inside the brothels yes. and i was filming. i was going to ask you about that yeah i've told you before and you know i was filming um and i had two very in those days you know the cameras were bulky it was a beta cam 800 and uh, i had a big cameraman a sardar and another guy and the three of us went inside the brothels and you know to go up the balcony there was always just one narrow staircase and it was protected uh, you know and guarded by pimps and uh, muscle men and all of that and uh, as we were going up he said that uh, you know i'm not going to take my expensive equipment in there it's too um too too risky and i don't know what's going to happen and i sort of challenged him and i said i'm half your size and i'm going up and you can definitely come with me so we did go in there and when i was filming a man pulled out a knife at me and he held it at my throat and he said that i won't let you make this movie and i literally didn't know if i was going to live or if i was going to die or would i be scarred for life i didn't know what his next move was and i just looked around me at the women who had who were sitting around me in a circle telling me their stories and these women came forward and they surrounded me and they told the man that if you want to kill her you've got to kill us first and he slunk away knowing it would be too much trouble to kill 23 women and so they saved me by forming a circle around me and they saved me before i saved them ever and that's what i reminded them when i went back with my emmy i said remember the power of our collective circle we formed a mandala and can be can apne aap not be a mandala and that's how the name apne aap was also born apne aap means self action in hindi so we realize the power of the circle in our own actions and we realize the power of the collective self action and uh, we began and you know it was just so empowering I know you're very close with Gloria Steinem. She's one of your best friends. Did the circle, the circle come of women come from inspired by her and her circle that she or did she get that from you know that she does that too for yes. years. Gloria got that uh from India but not from me. Yes. Uh, she, yes. as a young woman was uh traveling in India with a group of Gandhian activists and she was going uh, village to village um trying to quell some caste riots uh, you know some kind of uh, like you have race riots here you know there there was a caste uh, hierarchy and people were killing each other because of their religion and their caste and gloria can you explain the caste system can you explain that for people who may not understand what is the caste system and how it affects you know citizens of india in hindu religion there is a uh, 
hierarchy based on occupation and it is you're born into it and basically uh, there are like 64000 hierarchies it is so stratified and uh, those who perform um, all the rituals in the temples are at the top of the hierarchy those who rule are at the top of the hierarchy and that those groups are called castes um, those who are merchants belong to a different hierarchy that's another caste and inside being a merchant also there are different layers you know so if you trade in rice you will belong to a different caste from if you trade in oil and uh, this is how it is uh, right to the bottom if you work on the land you will be somewhere very low if you're a daily wage laborer or a you know farmer who works on the land even lower in the hierarchy if you work with leather if you clean toilets untouchable so you're absolutely out of the hierarchy altogether and you, even your shadow is considered polluting uh and people will wash their utensils if you feed if you walk into their home or if you eat drink tea from a mug in their home etc so it is that bad it's worse than apartheid and it's worse than racism because there is no escape if you're born into it and the society knows uh, all around you so that's high, that's caste and uh, and that's how the children like girls who end up in brothels have no way out in fact if, if it uh, wasn't for you the lower caste are uh, there are certain castes uh, who are supposed to be sexually available for upper castes and the traffickers know this so they go into caste communities which are dominated which are oppressed because they know that there are enough little girls who are poor female teenagers who belong to the dominated castes and nobody is going to watch out for them if they are taken away if they are stolen if they are kidnapped there's no police officer who's going to come and ask where they are where they are they'll say oh this is their destiny they are meant to be pimps and prostitutes and uh, the upper caste uh, groups also believe that this is their destiny so they will do nothing about it and they actually believe as the entitlement that um these low caste girls have to be available and this translates into policy too where the sexual exploitation is so normalized that i have had police officers tell me oh so you want the traffickers to be punished the customers to be punished how can you say that those are upper caste uh, people you know they have a right to do this men will be men and if girls uh, if poor girls from low caste families are not exploited then upper caste women upper class women will be raped so we have sexism we have misogyny we have casteism and we have of course poverty all of it gets mixed up intersectionality in the life of that little girl who's in a brothel so modi the president how does he feel about about what's going on in his country with uh, young girls being sold this is part of the system so he's completely okay with it poor low caste girls are not even on modi's radar uh, he uh, thinks they're disposable people uh, and he tried to actually take away even the few basic rights they have twice through laws that he tried to enact one was a law on child labor in which he basically legalized child labor by introducing clauses into an existing law oh god he said that girls up to 15 years old can work and it doesn't matter they don't go to school or they can work after school so he he violated international labor organization standards and united nations protocols to do that and then two or three years ago he uh, he tried to introduce a law to basically say that uh, sec- against trafficking but he took away the words sexual exploitation from that law so he wanted to say that there is no such thing as sex trafficking in law we opposed that law and he wasn't able to push it through parliament but he tried very hard to make sure that sex trafficking would not be considered human trafficking again in violation of the un protocol because remember modi comes from a group known as the rss RSS was founded in uh, correspondence with uh, Hitler and after a visit with yeah. Mussolini third reich <laughs> right ss right and he they've added an r before that and basically what uh, the group is an all male group it's a paramilitary group and the founder said that the reason he formed this group was he wanted to militarize hinduism he thought hinduism was too passive and too sissy so he invented a new term called hindutva 
and he said i'm going to milit- militarize this and it's only going to be men and they're all going to be taught to fight and especially against anyone who's not part of the caste hierarchy so modi was groomed from age 8 in that group so he believes that women should have a subjugated role in society uh, they are meant to be mothers daughters wives reproduce and be caretakers of the house uh, he that's what's happening in america so starting to slowly but surely like this violent disease of fascism and and misogyny coming in through the QAnon group and all this stuff that's happening that we just are saw on January 6th. I mean these that's what's starting to happen here. Don't you feel that? Absolutely and I don't know if you know that but the QAnon groups have infiltrated a lot of the yoga groups and the art Yes. uh saying that there's a new power in yoga which is based on tantric stuff and which is based on the subjugation of women's bodies and this comes from a fascist in italy called evola who had written a book called the power of yoga and so there's a huge infiltration where they use the naivete of the people in these groups who are who think they are basically checking out of society and mainstream life and then they manipulate them towards fascism and fascism you have to remember rests on two pillars one is violence and the other is misogyny Yes. and uh, uh it, fascism eroticizes violence and especially violence to women we're so anxious uh, as you, in the last few years and uh, there's a, just a little relief it's funny because i had a talk last night uh, with my friend jane fonda who was you know worried that i'm getting too negative and that i there's cause a celebration right now that we really should get into the energy of the fact that Biden is doing good things and and he is and he's surprised us all by the things that he's moving forward and for me not to be so um down about it all uh uh cuz I have been not him but just terrified about what you're talking about in your country seeing slowly but surely are people really aware that this is happening here it is and we 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 have to refuse fascism no matter what it is slowly happening and we and it and one day it could just be there and and then and then what exactly you know? rosana you know in india people used to tell me when i used to warn people that fascism is coming they would say oh, it can't happen in india india is too big mm-hmm. we are too democratic we are argumentative mm-hmm. we are too chaotic and you know all of a sudden now we are fighting for every inch of democratic space every day i wake up in the morning to hear about the arrest of some innocent person just because she or he has challenged the government uh, yesterday a young girl who's in her 20s was arrested because she made a toolkit on the farmers protest inspired by greta thunberg and she's in jail today every single day uh, we- that was the environment you mean just 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 because she did something that was about the environment which because the environment in india is horrendous that they have no yeah absolutely the they is, just throw everything in the in the in the river and it's awful and the air is uh, toxic nowadays and, yeah you know greenpeace has been kicked out of our country ford foundation uh, was kicked out and allowed to enter only on the uh, only if they checked in with the government for every grant they gave golden handcuff and uh, 50000 ngos have been shut down who do not agree with the fascist principles of the ruling party so ap- what's happening with apnea right now an ngo which works against sex trafficking mm-hmm. what is controversial about that getting little girls from red light areas into schools and helping their mothers access food and other basic needs that's what apnea does in the red light areas and suddenly uh, modi's government sent us letters saying that i the founder have uh, been practicing unconstitutional and anti-national activities by showing india in a poor light abroad and what was that anti-national activity i was making movies i was amplifying the voices of survivors and talk at the un saying that they need more help they need better laws and policies and we have to get it to them the anti-national activity i was doing was i was distributing food as part of a huge food drive that i've been running called 1 million meals during covid yes uh to get food to the victims of sex trafficking just because the government failed to do so because the government thinks these are disposable people the stigma the hierarchy the all that is part of fascism right that some people are better some races are superior some class of human beings deserve the food and others don't 
and uh, how did you get out? Like so, so they took your passport away. I was really worried about you, and then you also got COVID, uh, and so I mean, and here you are back in your home, and you're a survivor on every level. And I'm so happy that you're okay. I, I was worried there for a minute, like, are you going to be okay? Like you just, uh, and I'm so glad you got out. But how did you get out? How did they let you out? You're so. How did they not arrest you? So they did want to, and there, I've had some several skirmishes. So first, they tried to uh, harass me by shutting me up by attacking my NGO. So they sent this letter to my NGO, and they said they punished my NGO for my political beliefs, basically, by uh, freezing two of our accounts. And we had two other accounts which we are working through, but the two main accounts. So a lot of our money is lying locked up in a bank, which we could not use during the COVID crisis. In India. Oh no. Uh, the second thing they did was that when I went inside the country at the airport, they took away my passport, saying it's damaged, and gave me a little piece of paper to say you can go in and figure out what you're going to do. And they would have possibly done more, but I have been reading for the last three or four years books on fascism because I've had to deal with these people for about twenty-five years since I was nearly strangled to death by them uh, uh, when I was a reporter covering the demolition of an archaeological site by them. And I, um, uh, you know, I knew what to do. So day one, when I landed in India, there was a big event inside my NGO, Apne Aap, uh, with the Queen of Sweden who was visiting the children. So we had a lot of press. We had foreign diplomats and all of that. That was the first thing which happened. The second thing was that I went and met the UN resident coordinator and briefed her that I was in the country and what was going on. Um, the third thing I did was I flew to uh, my own hometown, Calcutta, and got a new passport through people I knew um, and got some uh, Schengen visa stamped on them, that and did two events with the American embassy and the French embassy there. Again, prominent events. Um, and I also spoke to people I knew here before I went who had previously worked with me and knew me. So they had told people in their different embassies that uh, I was coming into the country and uh, to keep a watch on what was going on. Um, and I filed a case against the uh, Ministry of Interior in my country called the Home Ministry, uh, which had sent this letter freezing my NGO's bank accounts. And they had actually... Uh, interrogated the executive director of my organization by calling her to a stadium and in pl some plains clothes men in this unknown stadium with their shirt buttons open had thought that she was me and tried to shake her down and uh, terrify her think and when they realized that uh, she, her name was different from mine. They asked her about where I was. They wanted to know where my parents were and all of that, basically to send a message to me. So I thought that instead of fighting in the shadows, I need to draw this out into the open. So whatever I have to do, it will be done transparently. And so I filed a case against the Union of India, against the government of India, saying that you cannot punish an NGO for the political beliefs of the founder. I hired good lawyers and the case is still going on. And uh, so far, the judge has been asking the lawyers, uh, the government lawyers, to produce some evidence uh, for uh, punishing our NGO. And he has said that, you know, you, he's told the government lawyers that they have gone beyond the ambit of the law by punishing an NGO before even investigation has begun. He's also told them to produce the evidence in a time-bound manner. So I have drawn them out of the shadows into the open. And now everything is part of a legal proceeding. So I think the international support of feminists and other networks I have, because Gloria Steinem also announced on a public program, a conversation that I did with her, uh, uh, with thousands of people watching in India, that uh, they were everyone in America was looking out for me. And yes. He was looking out for me, and if anything happened to me, then people would be ashamed, attacked, and all of that. And she said that very openly that I was not alone. So I think the international friendships I have, yes. the fact that I went, to, uh, I took the matter into open court. Uh, and, uh, you know, the media publicity and all of that that I did when I was in India, I think all of that uh, sort of has kept the government at bay. But the fact is that I'm still being harassed. My NGO is still being harassed. The staff that I have are uh, having to face off all this. And uh, 
we are trying to do our work in spite of it all. But so many of my friends, the NGOs have closed down and they've given boxes and boxes of documents uh, to the government. And um, so many of them have charges against them, have uh, of sedition. Uh, so many fellow journalists have been booked by the police. They cannot leave the country. Uh, so it is it is a very dangerous and tricky time for India and also for America and for democracy in general. Yes. So if we don't learn from each other, uh, you know, our destinies will be similar. What do you think we have to do moving forward in America right now in this time, even though, think you know, by the grace of, you know, that Biden is in, we still are dealing with this, you know, fascism, half the country, you know, and what, what do we do from, where do we go from here? We refuse it. We have, we're organizing all of that, but what can we individually do? I think the two main things I can speak uh, based on what has happened in, in India for now, it seems in India, we've lost the battle. We have an authoritarian leader who's changing laws and arresting people and taking over the country um, and has basically got into every government institution. So it's like a machinery we are up against, not a political party. And it's hard to recover lost ground. Um, two things that uh, the mistakes that we made in India was that we did not uh, hold accountable uh, the people who were um, destroying all our institutions uh, right in the beginning. And so we said, oh, you know, uh, we don't want to hurt the sentiments of Hindus. Uh, when I was nearly strangled to death, uh, when I was covering the demolition of a mosque i remember i was belittled and humiliated in court i was asked that well, how can you speak about what happened to you uh, you know journalists should not become the story um, uh, you should keep quiet and move on this is what happens to a girl who's doing a man's job etc etc and we never held those accountable there was no discussion in parliament the political party was not banned and they just continued uh, about their business and they grew in that process by polarizing India. Uh, the second thing we did not do was that we never educated India about Islamophobia because this political party was destroying a mosque and they were trying to polarize the country on Hindu-Muslim lines along. And, uh, you know, so today there's a whole generation of people who don't understand that Muslims are not terrorists and they have been deliberately othered. And uh, so they're doing it in China, too. And that it's a hidden concentration camps in China, right? They're doing it in Philippines, too. They're doing it in Brazil, too. There's another everywhere. And in America, what I've noticed this time is there has been a robust fight put up by the Democrats. Uh, they have confronted racism and slavery head on. Um, yes. There is a debate in um, the Senate about the attack on Capitol Hill, which is much more serious than the demolition of the mosque in India. This is Capitol Hill. And the presence yes. of the country standing inside and saying, "It's you're very good people. Go, go. I love you. That's what he said. And so, um, you know, this is very, very dangerous. And they have to be held accountable, first of all. This is very important. And the second thing is the counter narrative to whatever QAnon and the Republicans and the Proud Boys are doing about the sidelined majority or, um, you know, making people believe that they are uh, being victimized when they are not. The a counter narrative on racism has to be uh, very, very much shared with as many people as possible in as many ways as possible with as many generations as possible. Uh, because otherwise people, are, you know, people, uh, white folk are feeling threatened and uh, somebody has to give them the right facts. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, and you, you, you could see how they were whittling away, especially in the last four years, everything that that was helping human, humanity. I don't understand how these people, the, the QAnon people or the Trump supporters even feel like, what has he done for their lives? Like nothing. He did not, he did nothing to make their lives better. I don't understand what, why that they're so devoted to him. Well, they've always been the rage and uh, uh, Trump has tapped into that rage. And so yeah. Anon tapped into that rage and directed it towards, uh, uh, you know, black people. You know, like you remember when in Charlottesville, there was the attack. Yeah. And he said very nice people on both, very good people on both sides. That's what he did. That was, that's what uh, prompted Biden to come out 
which was amazing. Exactly. And so he said no. <laughs> very, very good because he's confronting it. The impeachment trials are an education for all of America. And we need to educate. We just have two years, really. And uh, in the two years, if we do not recapture lost ground, things are going to be very tough. Uh, that's the I, I can tell you from India. Because once they get into the government, yeah. actually use the state machinery and uh, then then what will be at stake is democracy i i think we're seeing it we're seeing it in real time and just what happened the other day the fact that they you know didn't think that he had anything to do with the with the, the insurgent like this crazy failed coup exactly. and he did I had everything to do with it. <laughs> telling us, you know, just like Modi, Modi used to say, make uh, India great again, shining India. And Trump says, make America great again. And, they, you know, they speak very clearly about uh, what they want and they go ahead and do it. And we think it's not possible. And by the time we react, they've already done it. He has already announced, uh, Trump has already said that his impeachment trials were actually the beginning of his election campaign. We have to understand right. that very carefully. That what yes. he's saying that he's going to polarize. He's going to organize more flashpoints between black and white people, and he will polarize. So we have to do give the counter argument to the polarization. And so, I think it's it it's if it wasn't for COVID, we'd be all on the streets every day, like like the farmers in India. I mean, we would be on strike. We'd be out on the streets. I I. I would. I know you would. I would. It's it's now yes. or never. It's really now or never because uh, if if democracy in America goes, then the whole world loses, right? Right. And it's tr- you're right. So so it's organizing. It's coming together. I do like this group, uh, Refuse Fascism, and now there are many, many more groups. I think there's a group in in New York City. Um, refusing. Uh, I forgot what it's called, but refuse. Racism and fascism um, of of New York City. They're they're doing a lot of work, and so it's just coming together. Everybody who how fragile our dom- democracy really is, and hanging on to it. And it's going to take all of us coming together to in to make sure this that we can breathe, that we can literally breathe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, because that's. I mean, I, I think because what the world witnessed with George Floyd, his murder for eight minutes and forty five seconds and the world saw that and that happens every day t- around our country um, without anybody filming it or seeing it um, and that we all w- were witness to that which you know spurred this this movement in in a way that we had never seen before we I mean of course black lives matter was always there but it got came to the forefront and I was I I, I was there I was on some of the the, the the protests like it was peaceful it was beautiful and it wasn't black lives matter that started the violence there was a, it was white supremacy like putting bricks up and 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 maybe you know a few people like paid people to like break a window i mean but there was no violence coming from from the black lives matter movement this summer there wasn't that's the whole thing you know rosanna is that you know how a lie can become the truth to the millions of people uh, that they spread their uh, messages to. And, you know, internet and uh, all the algorithms that they have through artificial intelligence uh, uh, have been working for them. And there is absolutely no regulation of spreading this hate and this lies. And something you're asking me, what can be done? I think we need regulated media. I know a lot of people say that uh, free speech is important, but free speech has to have boundaries. Um, and uh, the most important Hate speech is not free speech. Free speech shouldn't be hate speech. Like hate speech that cr- that creates... That's not freedom. Hate speech is not freedom. (laughs) And, you know, Gandhi writes in his experiments of truth um, uh, that, uh, you know, once uh, he says he wanted to figure out this idea of freedom of speech and he's walking on the street and another man was walking towards him and that man was swinging his hands. And Gandhi told him that this was in London. And he said, please don't swing your arms like that. It's going to hurt my nose. And so the man said, I have uh, the freedom to do what I want with my body. And Gandhi said, your freedom ends where my nose begins. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
And that's it. So, yeah, and that's gotten because of the Internet, because of the Twitter, the social media, the, the, the new platforms like the parlors, which are all basically fund and create for hate speech and disinformation. Um, it's 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 terrifying. You know, you know, the old fashioned journalism. That's why, because, you know, in, in the old fashioned uh, newspapers, like you know, there was an editor, there was an editorial team. They would fact check and only then things would get into the paper. Now with Facebook and Twitter and all of that, anybody can post. Oh, how about Fox News? And Fox. Fox News. Fox News. Who, like, who, I always felt like is. is did Putin make a deal with Murdoch? Like, what's the deal here? Because this is just state TV. And they just constantly are brainwashing half of the country that believe this shit. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. It is terrifying how easily people want to believe lies. And how, how, and then you think, like, how are they believe? like, why, how does... How do they get away with it? All these sponsors, and I, I, I've been saying it on in my Twitter, like boycott. We have to really be serious. So maybe we're going to lose our cable. I mean, but Fox News is frightening what they're doing. I think, and they constantly lie. Like, and so many big companies that we use, people like you know, big movie studios, all these, are fund them and and give them money. We have to, we have to boycott. Absolutely. And that's an action point. So we have to think about these kind of action points and maybe make a list of 10, which can be very critical pivots uh, to do something because uh, really we are fighting for to breathe, as you said. In the past, people fought not to be cooked, literally, in Auschwitz, and now we are fighting. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, I mean, I mean, we have our own concentration camp that, you know, everybody's, not everybody, but that's you know at the border and uh what what he did with the children and you know um what was going on there that they they took breastfeeding babies away from their mothers and locked them up in the most horrible cages and without anything without food and medicine they would not let doctors down there dr astrid hager wanted to go there with a group of doctors they would not let any doctors in it's just like and this I, I know Biden's, you know, working on that, but it's terrifying. We're trying to reunite, you know, the kids, but I think a lot of uh, people disappeared, and I have, I, I feel, and I don't know, but I've, there's a lot of missing kids. Where did those kids go? I mean, we know you, you know, the horrors of the, the, the communities of, of kids who have been separated from the parents, and nobody's watching out for them. One of the things is sexual predators, right? Yes. So they've sold. The, I feel like. A lot of them may have ended up in trafficking. And then from there, this is really horrific, scary. Will people be angry that I say something like this? But uh, we know that there's there's also organ trafficking that makes millions and millions of dollars. Like some of these d- disappeared people, they sell their organs. I know there's a lot of sale of kidneys and cornea. And uh, there are these clinics which do illegal operations. There are apartments where uh, these women are kept till they're operated on. Many of them are illegal migrants. Uh, others are victims. They did hysterectomies. They did hysterectomies on migrant women. And victims. Which I, trafficking. Yes. Yeah. As you said, so pension camps on the border. Uh, almost like cages and children are separated. I'm working on a, a book on a little girl who died in near the Arizona desert. Her father was a taxi driver in New York, uh, a migrant from India. And uh, he had left home when his daughter was six months old. And they kept trying for a visa. And during the Trump administration, of course, the wife and daughter could not get a visa in spite of all the family reunification ideals. They paid a smuggler to take them across the Mexican border uh, near Arizona and the child got separated from the mother looking for water and the border guards found her dead, uh, dehydrated. And, you know, there are stories and stories like this, uh, heart-wrenching, mother-daughter separated, uh, children stuffed into detention camps and uh, now, you know, it's going to be hard to trace their parents how many of them, and all this was outsourced to private profit-making prison uh, companies. And, you know, God knows how many of those children were sold by guards inside those companies because nobody was going to come and look for them. And now, you know, Biden is trying to trace their parents. Uh, It's going to be so hard to find the child, find the parent. Those years will never come back.
But you have seen some miracles in the work that you do with helping girls get an education, sending them to college, and having having a healing in your circle, the healing circles. Um, there's healing that can come from this, from from the work that you've done in Apnea, which I have always felt is like you know God's work. I got to tell you. <laughs> So, you know, there is a healing and, uh, you know, of course, the failures are many more than the successes because the situation is so grim. And I'm dealing with both organized crime and intense trauma because it is a body invasion and uh, repeated body invasion as male prisoners will uh, tell you is the worst thing which can happen to people. And there is higher rates of PTSD among victims of trafficking than even returning war vets, right? So, you know, of course, I cannot help so many people recover. But then I thought I'm going to, and this is from Gloria Steinem, I learned this. She always said that do what you can. Don't think about think, don't think about what you can do. Don't wait for the perfect, but do what you can. Because only time will show whether something you did was big or small. And that has been true really in my own work. Because it all was very daunting. It seemed so overwhelming. You know, a child trapped in a brothel, trafficked across thousands of kilometers, um, important people, politicians, border guards, prison companies, um, all of them involved. You know, who was I, a journalist who'd even given up a job to stand up to them? And yet, you know, I... Uh, succeeded with a few girls, I managed to shut down a red light area in India uh, forever. And so that community will never have to face this destiny again. The women who started Apnea with with me, who wanted to save their daughters from prostitution, their daughters have finished school and have got uh, jobs and they're helping their mothers now get out of the red light area by living with them. Uh, So there is a possibility. And also, you know, the friends and allies I found, as I went along doing my work, you know, how how unlikely is it that you and I should be talking? I'm from India, from Calcutta, and you're from Los Angeles in America. Oh, New York originally, but yeah, I live in LA now. <laughs> I'm definitely a New Yorker. <laughs> you and I are together, you know, how unlikely is this moment? You know, it's it wouldn't have happened if you were not an activist and I was not an activist. There are different commonalities and there's a family of birth and a family of choice. And I found that family of choice, how, how unlikely is it that an Indian girl would speak to the U.S. Senate for a change in the law to create a law, the first Trafficking Victim Protection Act. I went and testified in the Senate for that. Or, um, you know, speak at the UN, uh, you know, I, I'm not. And did you get that law passed? Yes, I did. It was the first Trafficking Victim Protection Act of the United States. Yes. And uh, amazing. It was just like I was a documentary filmmaker in India and ended up doing that. So um, or meeting Gloria Steinem, who was from a different generation, again, a different continent. And, um, you know, one of my closest friends. And I don't even, you know, even the word friend seems. um, Soul sister. Soul sister is a good one. Mm -mm. Yes, I can get. And, uh, you know, my friendship with her has been an adventure. Because we don't have a sense of borders and boundaries at all, uh, you know. So it's hard for us to say we are from different countries or different cultures or anything. It's all merged into one desire for a world in which no human being is bought or sold. President Clinton, you know, so many people I've met along the way, and some of them have fallen by the wayside. Some have been caught in their own vulnerabilities after doing some good. And I've also realized that nobody is perfect in the work. But we all are flawed and we should not demand perfection of our own, you know, and nothing from our enemies because the enemies are greater, the organized criminals, the traffickers, the pimps, the brothel keepers. And we have to stand united and and not turn on our own because I've noticed within there's just even little groups of doing the same work. And yet they have this ego competitive thing, which is very dangerous. Like how about joining hands and joining forces? And then you're so much stronger. I just had this conversation with uh, people, you know, the, the, the anti-fascist people that are out there working and there's a few groups and they need, I said, come together, meet, meet with each other and join forces. You're, you're saying the same message. And that's what I don't, I get really nervous when people 
have ownership on their thing. And I understand, you know, that, that that's a danger zone. And we've all fallen into that. But it's like, I know for myself, having even experienced it a little bit in my own life, like, no, it, that's not okay. It doesn't work. We, we're all one. We join forces and we all want the same th- outcome. And you realize that, Rosanna, when you uh, sort of uh, sparked the Me Too movement and stood by the side to let others be the faces more than you, you did give your voice. You didn't shirk uh, the, the courage it required to be able to speak up because, you know, there is a repercussion in Hollywood and the industry. But you did. It certainly was for me, that's for sure. <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting because I remember, you know, in that time there was like a lot, there was a lot of women who didn't, weren't movie stars and had this same experience and their careers were ruined. And, and, but of course, like the press would come to me or they, like they wanted to talk to me or Ashley or, you know, uh, Mira and, 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 um, and that was that was kind of like I got to a point where it was like you know I don't I don't need to do that and here speak to this give it to them give it to them you know and so that that a lot of of the women you know have have really become real activists in their life because of this and 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 um, it's it's a good thing uh, but yeah what I was happy about with all of that was the work that Tarana Burke had done for all these years and that it elevated. Her work, because she was, she started the Me Too movement years and years ago, and it just, the spark, her phrase was sparked by, uh, I guess, Alyssa Milano putting, you know, saying that, and it was her work that she had done for years and years, and so that now she is like, you know, she is the the leader of the Me Too movement for sure, is, is Toronto Burke, and so to be a part of elevating her great work and all of that was, is a good thing. Exactly. So. And so you created a movement by making sure uh, uh, that other people had voices and amplifying it and stepping out of the way when required and stepping in when required. So, uh, you know, I've long admired you for that. And uh, I also remember, you know, when you um, hosted something for me in your home where I spoke about sex trafficking to a group in Hollywood. And again- so we brought in, we brought in some of the because people didn't know your work at at, at that t- at that point, and now everybody does um, in this town, I would say. Uh, but some real, you know, the powerhouse women with with words that were able to write a check and help your work. Um, uh, one of the first, you know, we had this beautiful luncheon, and you were able to speak, and 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 got some wonderful people involved, like a Sybil Robson, or you know, came to India, and and uh, we we. We helped uh, put somebody, you know, a girl named T Ortez, um, who was a traffic girl um, walker uh, through college that I met. I met when you guys were speaking together and then we went to the UN and I saw her speak at the UN too. Um, and, and, um, and I think uh, you and I and Sybil helped put her through college. Yeah, T, uh, Rosanna, Rosanna T has graduated through college and now she's in Hawaii with a husband. And-, and she got married. I know, I love it. Just had a baby too. Oh, I, and if, how is she? I got to speak to her. I got to, because I, I saw her on the thing and then missed out. So I want to, I want to connect with her. So she's happy. She's doing okay now. Yes. So happy. Good, good, good. So that's a that's a success story of what Apneap does because we through Apneap helped to put this woman who had been trafficked since she was four years old for a bag of heroin from her own mother sold her for a bag of heroin, and she is one of the great speakers herself um, uh, uh, on sex trafficking and um, and to hear that she has this uh, a good story right now is ending is is beautiful but that's that's some of the work that you do is put them through school and have a happy beginning let's say happy beginning <laughs> yes, yes we've broken the cycle for sure because you know this is doing a count of how many girls have i been able to put through college because i was feeling a little low with all these arrests of journalists i was a journalist and um, i was thinking you know nothing can be done and i said okay let me count what good things have happened and i started with the girls and it's 2,041 girls that I put through college who were born in the brothels. Oh. Their mothers were prostituted and they have been able to finish college. So it's, it's a good feeling. We think person by person 
and if we think moment by moment then uh, you know instead of getting daunted and overwhelmed we'll do it also the other thing uh you know is especially when we are dealing with fascism and dealing with misogyny in the middle of fascism and sex trafficking inside misogyny it's all layers of the same thing um the other thing is that you know instead of looking at up for the leader to come from somewhere and help us if we look at each other we can say yes and that's what we did so you know you and i met i and in this very unlikely fashion but then we went and helped tea and there's one person who's finished college because of this cross country cross culture cross what friendship yes. right so we did what we could we didn't think oh my god we'll have to wait for everyone to begin to think like us that can come and everybody if everybody just even takes on like helps in, within their own community one person like it just just everybody daily helping somebody it's 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 good energy it's a chain reaction and it and it it helps it it grows into something beautiful and that's what i hope we continue to do in this this world right now i i i get so scared cuz i have a 26 year old daughter who you know because you honored her and one of your apni app honored her for um what was the award that she got what was it was it was a beautiful the last girl the the last girl um and she read that poetry her poetry in that room and i was just so blown away uh but just this generation now of girls that are coming up like what is this world like they look at the world right now and it's just, it's it's daunting and depressing and there's a darkness to it and that we like to leave this world for my kid and her kids i just i hope we're going to like every day is just about you know obliterating fascism um in every way shape or form that's what we have to do and you know that's exactly your right to fear for uh, the kids uh, because you know we had a community when growing up so we, we got used to building friendships we we, we grew up uh, at a time when you know it was possible to form friendships and not feel alienated and right now um fascism breaks down relationships right it kills empathy and uh, yeah. uh one of the things it does in uh, you know eroticizing violence is it teaches me to hate you but it also teaches me not to empathize even if i begin to feel empathetic it'll cut it off and they use pornography to do that and uh, you know so basically it's just so alienated uh from each other uh, that it's hard to- and the covid thing the the whole covid of having to be isolated within our homes and then the access to the computer more it's almost feel like what is really going on here like did they purposely do this is there, there's something so horrendous and and ominous and dark about it that it's just so i it created more of a disconnect where we're not allowed to even hug or touch each other i mean it's a real disease that's killed very many people and now we've got this vaccine and you know, fighting about going up in front of computers who don't who yeah. walk, you know, i met my nieces uh, twins and i saw that they had a hard time talking because they've lost the ability to talk um, in these last 6 months they're only 10 12 you know and uh, all the time sitting in front of computers they have no companions so it's going to be a very very tough time we won't understand the five senses and that is why uh, you know when you think about zoe she's growing up in this world so how is she going to find uh, the companionship the friendship the community that she needs where are the five senses and i think one of those things will be her poetry it's really yeah. powerful and she's she's doing this ballet that is so extraordinary i i won't give away the costume that she created that's just i've never seen anything like it i mean she truly i I know it's like my kid and you're talking like my kids are genius but there is she is really brilliant on 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 so many levels um and I'm really proud of her because she's also walked through the fire um in her own stuff and that's her own story but she talks about it in her poetry uh where she came from to get to this place where she's able to use her creativity to heal and um and so I'm really I'm really excited about her future and and the life that she could have and i i uh i know that you know the, a lot of these kids are just surviving right now but the, like you're right about the young kids in front of the computer what i what i've noticed is that 
the educators now need to figure this out because they're doing it in the way they used to do it when you're in a classroom and you can't, you've got to, you, they have to change and do this. If we're going to be in, kids are going to be more online schooling and they're going to have to figure out a way to, to, you know, take breaks. A lot of the kids are actually, you know, on their phones the whole time, you know, pretending they're like, you can't, you can't regulate them. And so it's, and there's a huge depression that's coming from young people, more suicides than we've ever seen. I mean, this is chronically a danger zone, you know, uh, of what's happening. And I think that, I hope that educators themselves can find a way to do this in a more humane way for the kids. Absolutely. You know, and also like, you know, how are the kids, the kids will have to figure out everything themselves. Sometimes I feel, you know, I have this campaign called Girls for the Last Girl. And the reason I started that campaign was, of course, in LA, in the Crossroads School, uh, with four of your friends, children, if you remember, uh, Mamie Dillon and uh, Lucy Rice and Abby. And so basically, uh, I was trying to build empathy by doing that, where a girl... uh, from the first world of privilege uh, would be able to connect with a girl from a brothel and understand that while, um, you know, the birth lottery had put them in different positions, their dreams, their hopes and the aspirations were the same. So I think uh, what educators have to do is reconnect. We have to figure out how to rebuild connections as we build back better. And rather, because this new fascism wave is going to try to divide us. And we have to see how can we connect, connect, connect all the time and build empathy. Uh, so anything which cuts off empathy, we should remove from our life. If porn cuts off empathy, we should remove it from our life. We have to be really careful about that. Uh, you, you and I are like empaths. <laughs> so so it's a, yeah, I found but that uh, but Rose, more than... You and I had not met in person. Do you think we would have formed the same level of friendship? No. Not, I mean, maybe, may, I, I, no, 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 because it was our connection, uh, seeing each other and, and our feeling each other, connecting in the eyes and just being next to each other energetically that we understood each other. So, no, I think it's harder to, if we just met like this, I would say, yes, I love you, you're a lovely human being, but I know you more who you are by spending time with you, by eating Indian food at your, prepared at your home. <laughs> You know? you know, there's something more to sharing moments and which is osmosis. Yeah. Yeah. Explain to me just, you know, um, what does Apne App do? Apne App works to end sex trafficking by going inside brothels, inside red light areas and helping the daughters of prostituted women get into school and organizing the women in prostitution to access their basic needs and human rights by going to court or uh, by getting an ID card if they're undocumented, uh, by getting uh, some training to start a new business, and also filing cases against traffickers. Great. This is important, great work. And where can people go to help uh, support Apne App. We have two websites, and uh, one is called apneapp.org, A P N E A A P. Remember, A P N E A A P.org. Uh, and there are various things you can support uh, sponsorship for children in schools, or for a woman to get a new uh, job training, or to file a case against a trafficker. Or you can go to onemillionmeals.org, uh, which is our uh, food drive for victims of sex trafficking during COVID. Great. I'm going to also do, I'll do that myself too and put it out there. For, uh, I'll also redo that. Uh, so we'll have both. Um, I love you, Richiro. I'd love to see you soon. I've got to get my, my get, when I get to get to New York, which I miss, 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 miss. Me too. I'm so longing to meet people in person now. Yes. Well, you come out here too, it would be great. I would love to. You know, what I want to do is do a cross country and I want to go to all the civil rights sites. As soon as I get a vaccine, that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Now, you've already had COVID, so. Are you, is it okay to, you're supposed to get a vaccine even though you've had it? I'm waiting for my cancer doctor to tell me, but yes, uh, he can just, we didn't talk about that. Also, we, that was, that's a whole, that's part two, but you're also a cancer survivor. And I, I did see you walk through that. And I, I can't believe I didn't ask about that because I just remember you going through 
a lot of things, you know, like a cancer treatment, a mastectomy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and then still doing your work, still, still out there doing the work and never complaining. Yeah. That's and that's hope that life, yeah. you know, life is so precious and it's so worth living. And I realized that after cancer more so, um, you know, when I walked out of Sloan Kettering and I, it was a fall evening in New York and I could move my arm freely because I'd lost a breast and I felt so free in that moment with the twinkling lights of the towers, the twilight in the sky over Central Park and a yellow cab, you know, going past. I really felt complete. And... Uh, I think it was, you know, so many levels of lives going on around me that made me believe once again that life is so beautiful. Well, you, you're you so beautiful. And thank you so much for being um, on this planet, Ruchira. You're one of the avatar angels. Thank you. Thank you, Rosanna. Okay. Uh, I'll talk to you soon, okay, huh? Bye. Okay. Lots of love. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review Radical Musings to help other listeners find the show and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast to be alerted every time we post a new episode. Radical Musings is brought to you by Audio Up, produced by Krista Liney and Carla Braun, edited by Jeremiah Zimmerman, production support provided by Ashley Ardent, Sam Winter, Tyler Dorson, Emma Rappold, and Richard Regal. Thank you all so much.